Well, Gotway, do you think it ever gets easier to talk about trauma? I think it can. Um, it's gotten easier for me, but I, you know, it ebbs and flows. Some days it's easy. Some days it's hard. A lot of people do find healing in sharing. And I know that you've been able to tell a bit about your survivor experience on the show. And so now it's definitely probably time for me to share. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to share with us. I know how big of a deal it is and it's no small feat. So I just wanted to say Thank you. And I'm proud of you ahead of time. Thank you. Thank you for holding space for me to share. Yeah. So let's set the scene for your story. Imagine you're out at a restaurant. It's girls night. You've been craving time with them for a while. Things have been tense and a bit volatile at home. Words mostly. He's never hurt you physically, but the words still hurt. It's nice to have a moment away from the man you love who turned into a monster behind closed doors. And then you feel a hand on your shoulder. You look up, expecting it to be anyone but him. Honey, what are you doing here? He gets you alone behind the restaurant for a moment to scream at you, berating you and calling you names. Stupid woman, whore, loser. Back at the table, you feel his hand grab your leg hard under the table. And he doesn't let go until you get up to go to your separate cars. And, of course, he's parked right in front of you. You get behind the wheel of your car and turn on the ignition. You are fuming. This was your one night out, and he was different. He had this dark look in his eyes that he always saved for behind closed doors, for when you two were alone. And then he does something new. He puts his car in reverse and crashes right into your hood. He peels out, glaring at you as he drives off towards the home you share. You're equal parts terrified of what to do next. You can't go home, but you're also relieved. Now you have evidence of his rage. And now maybe someone will believe you. From Wondery, I'm Jenna Brister. And I'm Wagatwe Wenjuki. This is I Survivor. This is a show about the people who fought back, who won, and who live each day rising above their experiences. And this show can be hard to make at times. And by hard, I mean triggering and extremely important due to the gravity of all the stories that we hear each week. But it's really healing to talk about it all out loud and to hear firsthand from survivors. And it does help me feel less alone. Yeah, it's like we're all in this club, right? Not as a fun club, but... (laughs) And speaking of clubs, we know that you're in one as well, right? The First Wives Club. Yes, a fantastic movie and a little known fact from my personal life of Jenna Past. So today's going to be a little special, a little extra special, because I'm going to be interviewing you. Well, I love being interviewed. To start off, I'm wearing Madewell. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I'm nervous, but ready to share my own survival story. And this is about domestic abuse, because everyone benefits when we can openly share our experiences. I know we talked a little bit about this before, um, but when you were in your first marriage, you said your friends and family had no idea until you were ready to leave. Yeah, correct. So I wanted to ask you my least favorite question that's ever asked of all survivors ever. Why did it take so long for you to speak up, Jenna? Thank you for asking. No, really, but I'm... (laughs) Everyone loves that victim blaming question, but I didn't get out earlier because I didn't even really know what was going on when it started. There was a lot of confusion around what was even happening, and I didn't have a vocabulary for this. You know, I had never experienced it before. And so 
by the time I was in it, I was really deep in it. And I'm sure that's relatable for a lot of people who find themselves in a abusive relationship. That's why it took so long, because it was I didn't know what was happening. All right, Jenna. So tell me what happened. It all started on the night of my 29th birthday. I had just performed in a storytelling show and I invited all my friends out to watch. And we all went to a bar afterwards on Sunset Boulevard. We're all sitting around and chatting when this tall Venezuelan man came and sat down and he was a friend of a friend and the head chef at the cafe next door. And he wished me a Feliz Cumpleaños or happy birthday. And our eyes locked in this love laser. It was one of those moments when I wanted to know everything about this person. And let's call him Javier for the purposes of this story. And he was really funny and really charming. And he was also from another land, which was really exotic. After the party died down, a few of us left in his best friend's convertible. And so we drove around the city, and him and I made out in the backseat under the stars. And I was like, happy birthday to me. And this is one of those, you know, magical first meetings like that are in most Nancy Myers movies. And then the next day he called and asked to make me dinner. And he was a professional chef, so I knew it wasn't going to be like this microwave situation. It was going to be like top notch. I went over to his house and I just went full casual, like black pajama pants, hooded sweatshirt, slippers. He cooked for me, which was really sweet, and very romantic. And we just talked about our families and lives in L.A. And so we started seeing each other more regularly, you know, usually for dinner dates, him cooking for me or movies. And he was a lot different than anyone I had dated up until that point. Because one time I did a stand-up show and I went over to his house afterwards and there was a bottle of champagne waiting for me and he had made a banner that said, like, good job on your performance. And I was like, what? I was like, okay, I could get used to this. This is amazing because it's not usually like that after stand-up shows. And I introduced him to all my close friends and he was really charming and they all liked him. And he was kind of nerdy but fun and really vibrant. It all did feel really fast how into each other we were so fast. And I mean, I was 29, and so I wasn't a child. I felt old enough to make these kind of decisions. I think in the third week of our romance, I was sitting on the toilet with the door open, and we were talking about what we were allergic to. And I just calmly suggested that we move in together. And I had never lived with a boyfriend before, but I was like, oh, I could live with this guy. And so he said yes. And then in the 12th week of our romance, he made me risotto, and he proposed to me with his grandma's rings from Venezuela that were sent up. And I said yes. Yeah, so please describe what it was like to be proposed to so soon, right? Because it seems like you might have been having this duality of like, this is amazing, but holy crap. It was that, the duality of like, okay, is this what I think it is? Is this what it's supposed to feel like when you're about to get engaged to someone? And I didn't know what that should feel like. I think there's no rule book for it, but... It did feel fast. I remember that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I must be crazy or everyone's going to think I'm crazy. How did you convince yourself to keep going? That's a great question. I think it was so fun. I thought, oh, my gosh, I get to have this kind of relationship. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is what it feels like. Like the Lifetime movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly like that. Definitely Lifetime, not Hallmark. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I cried and I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to happen. OK, this is happening. It was, it was strange. Yeah. But exciting at the same time. You right. know, it was late at night, though. So not many places were open except for the Salsa Club, 
in town. And so we went to this salsa club and uh, I don't know how to dance backwards. We weren't far enough along in our relationship <laughs> where he taught me how to do this. And so he was super good and I was like, I can't. And so we just hit up the photo booth and there was this one song playing by the Buena Vista Social Club that I loved so much, I made it my phone's ringtone. So we Skyped my parents the next day and he met them in 2D and I was like, hey, mom and dad, this is Javier. And they were excited when I pulled my left hand into frame and I didn't do one of those like Facebook announcements where like in a meadow, you know, I always (laughs) pride myself on that. They were pumped. They're like, oh, cool. Great. Can't wait to meet you. And then he called his mom and grandma to give him the good news, but he had to translate because they only spoke Spanish. I took Spanish in high school, cuatro años, and I'm like okay at hablaring, but really (laughs) horrible at conversaciones. And so I'd always heard those nightmare uh, stories about mother-in-laws, you know, like these monsters. So I was relieved on Skype. I couldn't understand anything except the word, she called me Bonita. She was like, she's beautiful. I was like, oh, we are getting along great. (laughs) This is going so well. I remember when I told my close circle of friends, most of them didn't know that I was dating anyone. (laughs) I was like, well, yeah, I wasn't for very long, you know, surprise. They were cool with it. You know, they're like, all right, yeah. Like, we like him. He's great. Like, give it a go. You know, what's the worst that could happen? And honestly, I was genuinely excited to be a wife. Even though we hadn't been together very long, I think only three months before we got married, he did treat me really, really well. And he was really generous and really charming and he was always cooking for me and he was also really large he was like 6'4 280 so whenever I was out with him it was like having a built-in bodyguard (laughs) and that was kind of hot I love that movie and so in talking about the wedding we both wanted something really kind of calm and chill so we decided on Las Vegas Nevada calm and chill yeah yeah Las Vegas, like let's just it. get out like we're like we don't want to want to plan anything so let's go to Vegas so I remember as we were packing swimsuits I was like oh I've never seen him in a swimming pool because we met in February and this was April and I was like oh yeah I get a, I'll get to see my husband in a pool for the first time that'll be fun those are all those things I was kind of excited to find out you know what's it like to travel together what's his favorite summer cocktail I knew none of this but I was gonna find out so my family actually flew down and they all met in 3D. And um, my bachelorette party was that afternoon because we were going to get married that night. And so my very pregnant sister and my uh, non-drinking mom went to the Silverton Casino because there was a live mermaid show where women dress up and they have like air tanks and there's a mermaid show. And I was like just drinking alone, watching mermaids. And I'm like, this is the best bachelorette party ever. Yes, <laughs> I would totally do it again. All right. So I love to hear about the wedding. What was your dress like? What did your groom wear? Oh, yes. Okay, so I wanted to do something a little unconventional since it was Vegas. And so I got a short ivory beaded dress with like a ton of really pretty beads on it from Anthropology, And he wore like a tan and purple linen suit. So like mm. Vegas. And I had pink heels. And we ended up picking this place. It's called the Little White Chapel. And it's famous because that's where like Britney Spears, yeah. Michael Jordan, Sinatra, like all the celebs get married there because it has a 24-7 like surveillance feed onto their website. So at any point you can go online and watch whatever wedding is happening there, which was nice because his family lived in another country. So they were all able to tune in and watch. And so, were, you know, my friends back home and we selected the romance package which included a, well, the wedding itself, mm-hmm. and then a DVD. And 
100 photos, and all of them, the photographer made us do this, like, roll the dice motion. So we're all lined up, and then imagine, like, you, like, roll some fake dice and your hands out, and you're looking kind of like, yeah, all of the photos look like that. There were no nice ones of, like, (laughs) smiling. It was just rolling the dice, which is so telling. We got to ride around in a limo, and the whole wedding itself was super fun. Were you the kind of child that dreamt of their wedding day like was this something where you're like hmm, this is totally different than what i expected or you're just sort of like eh, i don't care and this is really fun how it turned out the latter yeah, yeah i was cool. i never had a vision yeah. for it before i was like if i end up meeting someone who i want to do that with we'll figure it out but mm-hmm. i never had any sort of thing that i didn't needed to insert a man into if that makes sense yeah that makes a lot yeah. of sense so how did you realize that that might have been your last happy moment Well, it was just after we got back, because the rest of the trip in Vegas was really fun. We had a reception in the honeymoon suite at the MGM. My parents rented it, and we had some cake and, you know, did dances and toasts. And I remember my dad and I danced to Wildflowers by Tom Petty, which was so sweet. And when we were on our honeymoon, he started acting strange. The first thing that happened was when I was trying to go to sleep. It was really late at night. And he, like, put on music really loud and just sat there and, like, stared at me as I was trying to fall asleep. And I was like, you want to hit the hay? And But he, like, didn't. And then he's like, no, I'm going to go to the store. And we're, like, in the desert. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird. But like, do your thing, whatever. We're on our honeymoon. And so then he took my wallet and he went to the store and got a bunch of food to make, like, a full dinner in the hotel kitchen. And I was like... What? And he woke me up and forced me to eat this full gourmet meal in the middle of the night. And I was like, I am so tired, bro. Like, I want to go wow. to bed. So that was the first thing that, but at the time I wrote it off. I was like, oh, this is just like his behavior. So I, I think some people might be like, how does someone force you to eat? He twisted it in that, because he's a chef, and that is his like love language. And he's like, mm-hmm. you don't want this. That means you don't love me. And I'm like, Okay, well, I'm on my honeymoon, so I guess I'm fucking eating this, even though I wasn't hungry. And that became a pattern through the marriage. And about five days after we got back from that honeymoon, I watched the guy I marry deteriorate before my eyes and turn into this other monster. All the charm, all the banners, all the sweetness, all the gestures were gone that fast. It was really, really rapid. And that's when the verbal abuse started happening. And at the time, I didn't even have that label for it. I was just like, oh, God, he's really mean and really critical of me all the time. And it was always when we were at home or in the car together. Of course, never in public or around people. And, you know, that I'm a whore, you know, that I'm worthless, that I have no talent, that I'm, like, fat, that I'm ugly, that I'm stupid, that... No one else will ever love me and that I'm lucky that he does because I'm so unlovable. Like horrific stuff. Things that you would never want anyone to ever hear. Like no human soul should ever hear that thrown at them ever. Jenna, when you think of healthy fuel, what comes to mind? Cage-free gasoline or kale or a handful of almonds. Those aren't exactly the most filling or exciting options, are they? Especially when you're trying to eat healthy in a hurry. Precisely. Which is why we here at iSurvivor love Daily Harvest. They deliver perfectly portioned cups of frozen organic fruits and veggies directly to you. All you got to do is add water or milk to the cup, blend or heat, and you're good to go. 
I love Daily Harvest because it totally changed my breakfast game. Their new protein smoothies are ready to blend, so I can make one and take it with me if I'm running late. I've been really into their new savory harvest bowls. Whenever I've got a late night, I come home, I make one of those instead of ordering in. And if you're a breakfast-for-dinner person like me, the pumpkin chai overnight oats are perfect for a night in. Yes, with a little oat milk, a fire, so good. Oh, yeah. Go to daily-harvest.com and let them know we sent you with the code SURVIVOR for three cups free in your first box. That's promo code SURVIVOR for three free cups. Daily-harvest.com. That's daily-harvest.com. FedEx has been used to mail everything from urgent contracts to a -a three-and-a-half-year-old panda named Bow Bow. But when overnight shipping first came along, no one knew if customers would really pay more for the service. And for a while, they didn't. In fact, at one point, FedEx was in such dire straits that founder Fred Smith went to Las Vegas to gamble the company's future at the blackjack table. I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery Show Business Wars, and we go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. In our latest series, we unbox the shipping wars as upstart FedEx takes on the behemoth UPS. Listen to FedEx versus UPS on Business Wars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app. It started really, really fast. That's that's what was, you know, it wasn't this like, oh, years went on of bliss. It was like, no, it was quick. Suddenly he quit his job in that first week, you know, and he was the main breadwinner. So this was the first week after you got married? Yeah. Yeah, the first he week. He quit his job. Mm-hmm. Was I, there I any warning? Yeah. None. I was shocked because I was like, wait, what? We just moved into this house? I am a nanny? <laughs> like... <laughs> Out of just, like, survival instinct, I got a second job. I started interviewing. I got the first job I interviewed for. So now I'm working two full-time jobs. And he never got another job. He started playing, like, zombie video games all day and all night. And I was like, do you have a plan? And I was trying to help him apply for stuff and put in, you know, applications for things. And But there was, he wasn't going to do it. He had no initiative. He was planning on me working around the clock. Because then I would be too busy to do anything else. And I would be making all the money. Did he say that he was looking for another job or he said he was planning on it? Did, was it ever addressed or was it just a sort of... A little tiny bit only when I would mention it. Hmm. And I wasn't this like, you need to get a job or I'm leaving you. It was more like, all right, so like, do you have any leads or like, what can we do? I was like really trying to be, I guess, the best partner and be the best wife that I could be because I didn't know what that even meant. But in my brain at the time, I was like, okay, yeah, great. I'll get a second job. That's what you do. You know, at least in that point, that's what you do. I remember thinking, I don't even have time for myself. I I couldn't see friends because I was working so much. And so I was seeing friends way less. And he started insisting that he drive me to work or if I had class, you know, I was like in an improv class and he would always drive me. And at first I was like, oh, that's so sweet. It's because he wants to just spend time with me. You know, and I was like, that's so romantic. And then I realized, but this is when I usually listen to my music and I call my sister or call and catch up with friends is when you drive. That's right. such a part of my daily life. And then I didn't have that. And so I was just slowly, without even realizing it, being isolated from a lot of my family and close friends. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just want to like pause on that, right? Like he... It was kind of like a double whammy. He got to see where you're going, right? Like mm-hmm. he's controlling your movements. It's less time for you. And you're isolated from your family because you don't get that time to talk with them. Yeah. 
and he got super possessive suddenly you know forbade me from hanging out with certain you know platonic friends and he started really controlling what I wore and I know this is really common but I mean I'm not a flashy dresser I'm actually pretty conservative and I remember one time I put on a tank top because it was hot it was summer by this point and he was like you can't wear that I'm like what like it's 90 degrees out right I'm gonna wear a tank top and he's like no that's too racy you're a wife you're married act like it oh my god and so I was of course at this point also getting weeks of just such horrific verbal abuse my confidence was like so low that I just started wearing like baggy clothes just to stop him from yelling at me or from standing next to the closet as I'm getting dressed and being like nope you're not wearing that nope you're a wife and then he would berate me for wearing baggy clothes and I was like I can't win with you and he always found something to yell about and it could start off with something nonsensical it usually did something like ah you know I'm tired and I was like okay cool yeah like let's go take a nap and then he would yell at me so much that I would be sitting there and be like wait how did this even start because I want to try to solve it I'm like let's finish this I want to go read or like take a shower like how can we finish this but I couldn't even track it and that's such a tactic of manipulation and abuse because like the more confused I am you have no ammo right you're they're knocking you down in the beginning and it's like now let's fight and you know you're already so disadvantaged yeah I think I put on weight pretty fast because he going back to making eat at all hours of the day you know like full elaborate meals where that I didn't need, you know, and if I was like, oh, it's okay, I'm not hungry, but like, let's just save it for leftovers, he would throw a full tantrum, freak out, told me that I was like lucky that he loved me and that no one else would. And, you know, back that cycle, that same cycle of just, and then I would like guilt eat, which is horrible, you know, and then it would make me feel even worse because I'm full and I don't, I'm not hungry. It was just, that was like the pattern. That was the cycle that we were through. So what was the sort of uh, breaking point? Was there like a point that you can point out? It's like, oh, that was the straw that broke the candles back. Well, I think the next one, the first time I ever could really clearly see the Jekyll and Hyde thing actually was soon after that. Uh, We went to one of my friend's birthdays at a bar and it was oldies nights. We're all dancing, having fun. And at, at this point, too, I was like... I don't even know what I would tell my friends if I had a moment alone with any of them, which I didn't. Mm. I don't even know what I would say. I remember asking one of my friends who I think was in her second or third year of marriage. I was like, does it get easier? And she's like, oh, yeah, the first year is really hard. And I was like, okay. And that made me feel better for a second. And then I was like, like, how hard was yours? Probably not this bad. The Jekyll and Hyde thing happened when after we got in the car. You know, we had a blast. I was like, oh, yes. I like moods are high. We're having fun. We're dancing. He's singing my praises. And then we got in the car. And then he just started mocking me as we drove. And he was like, oh, yeah, you think you're so smart. You think you're so talented. You know, you're just a piece of shit. And he just told my friends that cooking for me is his purpose in life. And then he wants to, like, father my children. And then then he does this shit. And then he got in a car crash on my side of the car. The first of three through the course of our marriage. Two months. He got three car accidents, and all three were on my side of the car. And then, but they were my fault. It's because I have bad energy. Wow. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little bit because that's some wild victim blaming. Um, I'm assuming he was driving. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Always. I never was allowed to drive. 
It's so how did he frame it as it was your fault at this thing about bad energy? That I was upsetting him and that if I wasn't upsetting him so bad that he wouldn't be distracted and get in a crash. Wow. When they were all, all three of them were like, so clearly his fault is like, you can't even blame the other driver or the pole you crashed into. Wow. That's when I started feeling physically unsafe. Because before it was like heart, brain, soul, self-worth. Those were all shot. But this was the first time that it was physical. Since reading up on it, that's, I think, very common. That that's physical is the last one. Yeah. And I was nervous because the crash was on my side of the car. So if it was injured me fatally... It looks like an accident. Right. When it very well wouldn't have been. It sounds very much like that cycle of gaslighting, too, right? Where the abuser mistreats their victim and the victim is fucked up, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're like, uh, understandably so, right? And they're like combining all of these tactics to use the cognitive distortions. Yeah. And I'm married to you. Mm. It just gets worse and worse exponentially. And I remember he had found like an old comedy journal and read some joke and then from that surmised that I was like some major hoe. You know, he made up some elaborate fake story just to do attack me, which was a classic move. And he screamed at me all night. I was laying in bed, just taking it, just like taking the insults. I remember looking out the window and I watched the sunrise and he was still screaming at me. And then I had to go to comedy class and be like, oh, yeah, let's throw fake knives. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's, like, pretend like everything is fine. I remember being like, what am I doing? I couldn't even laugh. I couldn't even make myself laugh. I was so depleted and so just burnt. So he just came up with something and was, like, slut-shaming you for yeah. something he assumed that happened in the past where you weren't even together anyway, so it's none of his business, even if you were doing whatever you wanted? Yeah. Like, he one time when I was at my work, he started texting me that he— had logged into my email and was reading old emails from 2007 and that there was a guy I was dating who had sent me an email that wasn't even racy. It was just like, hello, see you tonight for dinner. He made up this elaborate story that I was cheating on him. And I was like, did you look at the timestamp? That's from 10 years ago. Come on. He just wanted to find any reason to berate you and yeah. put you down. Yeah. Because he was like clearly fishing if he had to go like years back, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was also something that stuck out as really odd was how he talked about his past girlfriend. He had a really long-term relationship before me. And the way he talked about her, he was just like, seethe. Oh, he also went through my phone and deleted all my mail contacts, even just professional ones. When I had called him on it, I was like, hey, those are people that I work with or yeah, know, like are my to. old friends. And he would just get unreasonably jealous and accuse me of cheating. I was like, I'm not, che- I'm not cheating. I didn't know what to do. And I thought, we have to get out of L.A. because I can't be in this house anymore because all he does is scream at me. So I thought we'd try to rekindle some kindness between us and take a road trip to see my family up in Seattle. And this time, it was the Jekyll and Hyde show for the entire family. He wanted to cook a big dinner for everyone. And the whole time, he's singing my praises to all my relatives and my family. Really charming everyone. And... I remember sitting there in the in the kitchen and just being like, oh, my God, this asshole. I know where this is going. I, I had no vocabulary, though, at that time either to pull someone aside. And I don't think I had the opportunity to be like, hey, I need help. And after everyone left, we were cleaning up, and he found some excuse to call me a whore again. So I went upstairs to bed, and I was brushing my teeth, and I hear his footsteps coming up the stairs really slow. And then he comes around 
behind me and I see this knife blade drop to the floor. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. He's gonna kill me. Then he pulls the knife out from behind his back. And I was like, hey, don't do this. And then he held it to his own arm and threatened suicide. Yeah. Which of course elicits my reaction, begging him not to, crying. That was the most dramatic showdown we had had up to that point. I'd never been in that situation. I'd never been with anyone where they pulled a knife out and threatened anyone in front of me. So that was terrifying. It was like a 10-inch blade, Mm. a chef's knife. And so we cried, and I got him to drop the knife. Then we, like, got into bed, and he fell asleep, and I didn't. I laid awake just terrified. I was like, oh, my God, this is so bad. But still at the same time, I was under this manipulation guise of like, is he sad? Is he hurting inside? I was like, no, it's not that. But I was in it. So we leave the next morning to drive back down to LA and it came up in conversation about me changing my last name, which we'd agreed before we got married. I was like, I don't want to, you know, I'd already had enough things professional that I wanted to keep it the same. Mm -hmm. But I was open to changing it privately Privately. later. Of course, before we got married, he was okay with that. But now he started screaming at me pulled the car over to the side of the road and then took his wedding ring off and threw it at me. It got out of the car and started walking down the side of the highway. And I sat there and I was like, <sighs> okay. And I had this very real moment where I was like, do I just get in the driver's seat to say. for the first time in weeks and just drive? And I had that fantasy. I played out in my head the butterfly effect of what if I just got in the driver's seat and just drove? We were in the middle of somewhere, I think in Oregon, Instead, I played his game and I got out, begged him to get back in the car and we cried. And I told him I'd think about changing my last name, even though obviously I was not going to. But I said whatever I had to just to try to get back to L.A. Because I worried, too, that something could happen on the road to me in the middle of the highway. And he's acting like this. The next week, I think were the next two car crashes, I was having this like very real feeling that He was like trying to hurt me. And I was at one of my nanny jobs and I had a minute alone. The kids were like doing homework. So I opened up my laptop and I Googled, how do you know if you're in an abusive relationship? One of the top results was this list, 10 out of 10. And I opened it up. It was so bone chilling. I had nine out of the 10. And there were these seemingly innocuous things, you know, that all added up were 100% abuse. And I never had a word for it, though. That wasn't a word I, I used or really knew, I wasn't familiar with, as something that is so covert. They had the thing about the driving, controlling the finances, where even if I'm the one making the money, I don't get to spend it. I remember I got yelled at for getting a $10 manicure with money that I had made. Ugh. And it was like, isolates you from friends, monitors your every move. You don't tax your self-worth a lot of the like verbal abuse, and then turning any situation into a time where you feel guilty and he makes you feel like you've hurt him and that mm. you need to apologize. And so I was like, shit, that's what this is. Well, at least I have a word for it. It was part relief. What was the other feeling? Responsibility. It got real. And the other part of it too is that I knew that this wasn't love. I could separate the two because attention is not love. I know that that's really, really hard. I think that's why 
a lot of abusers are able to control people. He cares. He really cares. He doesn't. He wants me for himself. So you saw this list, you see the red flags, you have this label now of what you're experiencing. How did you get from that moment to getting out of the relationship, out of the marriage? It was mostly mental, the grieving process. I remember the specific day where I felt, because I was so numb usually, I felt any affection I had for him die because he was doing this full-blown assault on me with, like, insults. And, and in the process, it killed all sorts of emotions I had. I remember saying I was going to go for a run, but instead I just went and sat in a meadow by the reservoir and just, like, mourned the loss of it. And so I just leaned into that. And I came home from work one night, and the cat had gotten up on a neighbor's balcony. And she called, and she was chill with it. She was like, oh, Dante's up here. And so we went up there. And Javier was mortified, and he grabs the cat, and as we're walking down, he starts twisting his body. So I lunged to get him, and I was like, don't, you know? And then he dragged him along a stucco wall. I hit his arm to get the cat free, and I was like, that's it. Like, you can do what you want to me, but there is that pet maternal instinct that was like, no. If you ever see someone yelling at their partner in public, it's exponentially worse behind closed doors. And this was the night that changed everything. I was at a girlfriend's house. We were having a little ladies' night, and I didn't even at this point say anything because all I wanted really was to just talk about normal people stuff. You know, (laughs) that's it. I was like, let's talk about anything except relationships. And then my husband showed up unannounced to her house and I was like what are you what are you doing here and my friends thought it was odd because they're like oh you didn't tell us he was coming I was like yeah I I didn't invite him but they thought it was fine because you know he's my husband we go to this burger joint and as we're walking in my friends are ahead of us and he turns around and he screams at me he's like fuck off and slams the door so I'm out behind this restaurant like shit this is how he is in private now he's just boldly doing it out in public this is bad You know, and I'm trying to remain calm and just, like, get through the night. You know, let's just get through this dinner. And he has his hand under the table, and he's, like, pinching my leg really, really hard and twisting. And I was like, stop. And that was scary because he had never at that point laid a hand on me. So I got up to go to the bathroom at one point, and he followed me down the hallway. And, of course, you know, was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then managed to tell me that I was a whore. Then we finished up. I remember I closed out. And I signed my name because I paid. And then he gets the pen and he crosses my last name off of the check and just glares at me. And then tries to pick a fight and tell my friends that I'm not a real woman because I didn't take his last name. So I hugged my friends goodbye and I was really shaken up. And I I still just like a robot, just walked to my car. And, you know, and he was parked in front of me. We're parallel parked on this busy street. And I got in and I put on my seatbelt and I was like trying to strategize in my head and process what had just happened because it was so rapid. Suddenly I saw his two white reverse lights go on and slam into my front hood. And it shook me enough, you know, my head didn't hit the steering wheel or anything, but it was enough to rock me. And he does a U-turn and he's just glaring at me through our, our windows and sped off. And then all of a sudden I had this feeling of relief wash over my body because finally I had evidence 
my hood was dented. And they saw how weird he was at dinner. So I was like, okay, maybe if I do tell someone, they'll believe me. They won't think that I'm just like making something up because we're newlyweds. Because with, you know, verbal, mental, physical abuse, there's no bruises, you know? And so I ran inside my friend's house and I told them both what was happening. I was like, okay, so this is what's been going on this entire time. And they both looked at me and said, you don't ever have to see him again. And I just like started bawling and a whole boulder was lifted off me. And I was like, really? But we're married. And they're like, doesn't matter. You know, and they were this lifeline for me. And I'm so lucky that I had friends like that that could say that to me because the rest of the night was not the same way. And this became an all night standoff with the cops. He was calling, threatening that he was going to kill me if I didn't come home because he knew where I was. And then, of course, he sent knives and that he was going to kill himself and that I'd have to deal with the body and that he was going to leave a, a note saying that it's my fault. And so I called the cops to go to our house and they were no help whatsoever. He charmed them. No surprise, because when I called back, they were like, well, he told us you guys are newlyweds and that you just had a spat and you should probably go home and talk to him. He said he wants to work it out and apologize. I was like, oh, my God this monster and so my friends and I in our pajamas go to the police station and I'm like what do I do like all my stuff's there my cat's there they again told me to go home and I was like if I go home I'm dead and that's why the murder rate of victims is so high because we even have the authorities telling people who are in their lobby saying I can't go home they're telling them to go home so we know you got out so what happened since you didn't have the police um, there to help you so we Went back to her house. Again, just helpless, you know, because what what do you do? And he was still calling and texting and sending emails and apologizing. And this was the cycle, you know, of, of apologies. Okay, we'll go to counseling. Okay, I'll go to church with you. So finally, when he called and he was screaming at me, I put it on speakerphone. And for the first time ever, someone else heard. And they were horrified. They were like, what? This is how he talks to you. So the sun rose. It's going to be a theme. A lot of all-nighters in this and I called my parents. And that was the hardest because the last thing you ever want to do is disappoint them. I had to tell them that the guy I married and that who they just saw last week was actually a total monster. And my parents reacted in a really loving way. And my dad and my brother flew down that afternoon. I'm lucky because they both were in a place where they could take a week off work or a couple days. So in between my husband calling and texting, I was booking a storage space and a moving van for the next day. I picked my dad and brother at the airport. I dropped them off at their hotel and we had this like little exchange, like, okay, like, well, you know, be back in the morning and get everything. So I texted eight of my friends that night and it was really cryptic. I was like, hey, can you meet at my house at 10 a.m. and wear workout clothes? Then I had to try to get him to not be there because he would make it way harder. The police said I could call for an escort. And so I did. I was like, hey, can you send a police officer to my house at 10 a.m.? Didn't say why. And then I was able to convince Javier that I just need to pick up a few things and that we'd talk later that day, you know, and he's like, please, we'll go to counseling. I was like, okay, okay, but just don't be there when I come get my stuff. I needed to pack a small bag. Then at 10 a.m., my dad and brother and eight friends and I all met at the house and just started moving me out rapid fire. It took us just under two hours, and the, but the police officer showed up. And this nice guy, you know, on Sunday morning, beat. And I explained to him what was going on. And I was like, this is his passport. This is what's been going on. He was like, wait, 
Okay, so he fits the profile of a domestic abuser and he doesn't know that you're moving out right now? And I was like, no, and he could show up at any point. So he called for backup and he was like, usually you're giving this testimony in a hospital bed. So I put Dante in the cat carrier and I left his grandma's rings on the dining room table and got out of there. We unloaded everything into the storage space. He, of course, got back to the house and saw that half the stuff was gone and the cycle started again. You know, like, please come back. I'm so sorry. You know, and he was like getting friends. His mom was hitting me up, you know, sending me messages. she can't speak English? Yeah. She was translating stuff and sending emails. And she told me that I need to go back and give it another chance because we made a promise in front of God. Oh, God. So now he's having other people do his dirty work for him. Yeah. And trying to be like that excuses everything. I'm like, right. nope, yeah. we got married in Vegas. Pretty sure it was Satan. But <laughs> And also, like, yeah. then he shouldn't be, like, doing that stuff to you, right? Like, yeah. if it's about making a promise in front of God, then, like, why is it only about you to stick around and be mistreated? Right? Exactly. It's ridiculous. Exactly. I was relieved to be, you know, safe from it. But then came that tide of, I told you so. You should have seen it coming. There must have been signs. You know, you got married way too quick. You didn't know him well enough. And... Honestly, my message to everyone who said that to me and who's ever said that to anyone is that you are part of the problem. And that's what victim blaming is because it blames me for his abusive actions. And it suggests that I'm at fault and deserve this for my negligence when it's not my responsibility to not be abused by my husband. You know, it's his responsibility to not abuse his wife. Remember that movie, The Shining? Yeah. Shelley Duvall goes up there and they're in this lodge and Jack Nicholson goes crazy. But the whole time they're like, oh, why did she go to the lodge? You know, you shouldn't have gone there with him. That's because everyone's more comfortable with this like foolish woman narrative than the man turned monster. Right. Because what's scarier? Man turned monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I was able to never see him again, you know, block him on things because I knew that if I did, he would hurt me. And that instinct proved to be right because afterwards I you know, joined a group and educated myself on it. And the type of abuser he was, which is called like a drill sergeant, the controlling, um, 90% of victims that are able to escape are killed in the first year. And so I did the math and I figured out that I had a greater chance of Bob Barker telling me to come on down on The Price is Right than I did of living through my next year. Oh my God. And it's because of, like, the response of some of those police officers that were like, go home, go home. It's just a fight. It's like, no, it's not. I remember waking up feeling so relieved that it was quiet. And I remember laughing for the first, how it felt to laugh. And I hadn't laughed in maybe a month, which was so weird. That's the longest I'd ever gone. And I tried to get an annulment, but you can't because I didn't qualify. You have to prove that you were, like, either hammered or related or already married. And so we got like divorce light. So I sent it and he lost in the mail. So I actually hired a friend of mine from comedy to dress up in a suit and hand deliver. And so I was able to get it. But when I tried to get a restraining order, that was really difficult because I didn't have any physical bruises. Mm-hmm. But the woman there pulled me aside and was like, you need to get protection or, you know, move out of state because he'll come after you, which was scary. You made it out of that first year, and yeah. um, I'm I'm really happy for that. Yeah. The hardest part, too, afterwards was not blaming myself, not just committing to a life of not trusting my instincts. You know, I lost some friendships over it because a few of my friends were like, well, you should have really seen it coming. And I was like, we never are speaking to, <laughs> to each other again. Good. 
And just to wrap things up, did you find any other outside help, like support groups or therapists? Yeah, I found one for partners of abusers, a support group, and then I saw an amazing therapist who helped me work through all the feelings of feeling you know, overexposed and deeply shameful. That was really, really helpful. And also this book, it's called Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft. That oh. was like just the most fantastic eye-opening work about this guy who did a bunch of case studies and it's very like really lays it out. And so I highly recommend that. And I did a lot of work on myself, you know, did a lot of journaling and trying to stay out of that victim mentality and not blaming myself for basically for falling in love and trying something, right. you know, and actually I moved recently and I found my marriage certificate from Vegas and the 100 roll the dice photos wow. and that Jenna looks like a completely different person. And I love her because she was confident and really hopeful and had no idea what was about to happen. But as I was looking at it, couldn't help but think like, you know, sometimes you roll the dice and then the dice just explode in your face. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not your fault at all, right? It's the exploding dice's fault. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to share your story. And I'm glad you got out. Me too. Thanks for letting me tell you all that. Of course. And that's it for today's show. From Wondery, this is I, Survivor. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to help us spread the word about this series, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. New episodes come out every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast, or scroll down to find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed, and our show email, isurvivor at wondery.com. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors, like Quip, the electronic toothbrushes. Oh, they're chic and nice. If you'd like to hear more of iSurvivor and other Wondery shows, in addition to extra content, early access, and exclusive perks, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus. Go to wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. iSurvivor is hosted by me, Jenna Brister, and Magatwe Wanjuki. Engineering by Sergio Enriquez. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. iSurvivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. The executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive producers Marshall Louis and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, have you heard what other listeners have to say about the Wondery app? I think the Wondery app is really organized in a very natural way, sorts my options out so that I can really like zero in on that type of podcast I'm looking for. It's given me some good ideas for what's up next. So once I'm done and through all the seasons of Even the Rich, I plan on starting Guru. Don't just take our word for it. Try the Wondery app for free and join Wondery Plus for more. Wondery. Feel the story.